You're listening to The Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And you're listening to episode 13, Now with Actual Satanism, or Hotel Transylvania by Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough. Well, first things first, I just want to point out that I was a bit disappointed by the false yet true advertising in the title. I was expecting either a hotel or this to be take place someplace in Romania, and neither of those things happened. Apparently, um, Hotel Transylvania is actually Townhouse Transylvania and an actual location. I looked it up. It still exists if you ever really wanted to see this place. But it was not what I expected. I was expecting some sort of, you know, adult literary Adam Sandler movie. Which is what you yeah, get when it's not you... really a hotel and it's not Transylvania at all. Yeah, it's just the actual name of the actual building. Yeah, this is some sort of never ending story level fraudulent advertising. <laughs> the eventually ending story. <laughs> we should say about that we're going to discuss the first book in the series and only the first book. The current length of the Saint Germain series is twenty seven books. We only have so much time. So all our thoughts on this will be just around Hotel Transylvania, the first written book in the series. So there may be things that we comment about that get answered or um, dealt with more in depth in later books in the series. But we are just focusing on our thoughts on this first initial text. We understand that with 27 books, more stuff will come up. Exactly. The first book was published in 1978. This comes two years after a certain book called Interview with the Vampire. I mention this because the way that Hotel Transylvania is described, both by Yarbrough herself and other publications, authors, critics, etc., is as the pioneering text of its time. And I have questions about that. Obviously, coming two years after one of the most successful books of all time, there's going to be those kind of questions. Well, but the way that this book is con- is considered one of the defining texts of modern the modern vampire canon, I I question that's inclusion. Didn't it take Interview a few years to really take hold? No, I think it was an instant bestseller. So it received mixed reviews when it was first released, uh, but it doesn't say anything about the sales at the time. And remember, the sequel took about eight years, eight or nine years to come out. Mm -hmm. So there were certainly a a bit of a groundswell. But do we know how successful Hotel Transylvania was when it first came out? I don't know. I think a lot of these texts of this kind really hit their stride later on. I would argue around the late 80s, early 90s, when you have the rise of horror, uh, of paranormal, of urban fantasy and so on and you have these authors talking about people like Rice and Yarbrough being their influences. For the longest time the Saint Germain series the cover quote was by Laurel K. Hamilton which <laughs> I, I feel explains a lot She must have stopped reading when she realised there was no sex <laughs> So I think we should explain a little bit about what Hotel Transylvania is about Yeah so as we mentioned the it's not about a hotel and it's not set in Romania we sort of struggled to find a place for it because it's not so much a book about a vampire set in a specific time period. It's more, it feels more like a historical fiction book that also happens to have a vampire in it. 
one of the major yeah. players is a vampire, but he's not even the focus of a lot of a lot of scenes. Like a good chunk no, of the book, it's really he's book not there. About, it's a book about the high society of the court of Louis the Fifteenth and the sort of the the structure of that, the dealings going on, the relationships, and then there are Satanists. Yeah, it's like you could take out the vampire thing and just replace him with any other fashionable badass romantic hero. It's like you could just replace him with um, that period's Bruce Wayne. He kind of is Bruce Wayne. Like, he's a total playboy. Everyone's fascinated by him. But he's never actually with anyone. Yeah. And he always wears black. We've just cracked the code. So Saint-Germain, or to give him his full title, Le Conde de Saint-Germain, is this is our protagonist. He's extremely well-cultured. He's handsome and charismatic. He speaks multiple languages. He has a reputation as being an alchemist. And he's based on a real person. And he writes an opera sort of thing. So he's basically Bruce Wayne crossed with Phantom of the Opera without the obsession. In this version, he is the quote-unquote nice guy. Which is... A bit different from interview, I have to say. Yeah, this is where I'd say there are certainly an interesting contrast to be made, which we'll get to. Uh, the original, or the real Comte, I should say, was very prominent in high society in that era of France and used to tell Porky's about his age, making himself sound much older than he actually was, unnaturally older, and also claiming that he was a prince of Transylvania. So, of course, anyone would look at this person and think, hmm vampire we should totally make him a vampire especially as the years and the centuries went on the myth built to the point where he couldn't be anything other than a vampire because they began to spin rumors that he was drinking essentially from the fountain of youth so that's as you mentioned earlier this isn't so much an alternate history novel it's really a historical novel that happens to have a vampire in it I compared it sort of sketchily to Outlander, which is a historical series that happens to have time travel in it. And there's a very specific romantic focus on it. Maybe, I don't know if the romance is more prominent in the other books, because here I found the romance kind of very, very thin. At least it wasn't a reincarnation romance. Oh, I sighed with relief. I really did. You know, he he seems to have been in love with somebody else and, you know, that's ended and he's moving on. Yay! Vampires with adult emotions. (laughs) He is sort of positioned as kind of like the perfect man. Not just of this era, but of any era. Especially in contrast to the other men in this series, which we'll get to, but I want to talk a little bit first about uh, the real Comte and another figure of history who ended up being vamped up, which would be Vlad the Impaler. So the real Saint-Germain is not a historical figure that a lot of people would know off the top of their head. I didn't know he was real until I was doing research for this episode. But people know who Dracula is, or they know who Vlad the Impaler is. Even if all they know is what they read in horrible histories, or they saw in some tatty late-night Channel 5 documentary. I don't know what the New Zealand version of Channel 5 is, but like the, the tattiest channel with all the trash on it, that kind of thing. There's a certain amount of wriggle room that you can get with both, but with the Saint-Germain one, it's interesting how much Yarbrough sticks to what we know of that character. Basically, everything we know about that character, or at least as much as documented about his real life, is in this book. It just, in this case, he happens to be a vampire. 
Whereas with Vlad the Impaler, the stories of his real life are so strange and outlandish, you can kind of do whatever the hell you want with them. And so many versions of Dracula just ignore that. The character of Dracula and the real life figure of um, Vlad the Impaler have become so intertwined and yet so separate that you can go either or. Yeah, it's kind of like what Shakespeare did with Richard III. You know, his Richard III is no longer actually a historical depiction of that character. It's essentially every crooked politician ever. It's become more than a character. It's almost like its own philosophy. Whereas with Yarbrough's series, it's it's far more straightforward. And it's far more surprisingly faithful to history in that aspect. Because it really is a historical novel. It reads way more like a historical novel than anything paranormal. Of course, this is so early in, I guess, modern vampire fiction canon or even just vampire fiction in general that a lot of the styles and tropes and subgenres had not solidified yet. That's true. Because, I mean... So reading this is really fascinating in that aspect because we read a lot of this and think this seems really derivative, but the chances are everything else you've read is derivative of this book. Yeah, it's because once you hit the early 90s, that's when it really... that vampires and everything really start rushing in on the fiction side, where you really start getting the the paranormal romance and the urban fantasy side of thing versus um, the more horror-based works, whereas this is just whatever it wanted to be. Yeah, I see how this character is more influential in terms of that romance-style trope than, say, Anne Rice. And I feel like a lot of that is because Anne Rice's stories are more queer, and this is not queerness is mentioned but in terms of that central relationship it's fully heteronormative and the most idealistic version of heteronormativity you can think of it just in this case it's there's immortality involved as well because all of the men in this book are awful (laughs) and they're all described as being the worst there's a handful of good guys but basically it's a book about women trying to avoid the worst of men Basically, every conversation that women have in this book, or a big chunk of them, and including the letters they send to one another, is men are awful, so the best you can really do is hunker down and try and get on with your life. Watch out for that guy. And my husband's gay, so no babies, but no shitness, so it's it's okay. There is one character who talks about her husband being gay and going to a priest for advice on it. And his advice is, just pray. <laughs> and you, you might get a baby. It's like, no. That's <laughs> not uh, how it works. I'm just imagining the, the priest, you know, getting all these questions and his only solution is just the same. Pray, pray, pray. He's like the Reverend Lovejoy of his day. Have you tried looking at your Bible? What page? I don't know. They're all the same. The, the religious version of, have you tried turning it on and off again? talk a little bit actually about the women in the novel and their relationships to the men and particularly Mm Saint-Germain because I think that along with the historical details really kind of the backbone of the story more than the speculative elements but the way that the women in this novel they get together and this it's almost like a, a kind of communal warning system just for the realities of marriage between men and women and the societal expectations placed upon them. And in this particular era of history, this is set during the reign of uh, Louis XV, who is probably best known to the casual historian for being the French king who had the relationship with Madame de Pompadour. 
So he's off having this very prominent extramarital affair and having crap loads of illegitimate children and gaining a reputation for that. And the women in this novel, their main concerns are how do you navigate that? A lot of the novel is basically women giving each other advice, giving each other heads up. They're all basically discussing who in their social groups are the missing stairs. The men that they can't stop associating with entirely, so how do they navigate a society that approves of these men? And the answer is really just sit tight and hope you find a vampire. <laughs> yeah. And avoid the Satanists. Yeah, a lot that's of the, a given. A lot of these conversations are these women with bonus um Saint Germain. <laughs> He's just sort of involved in these conversations as well. He's sort of just been adopted by all these women as one of them. He is like the honorary woman of all these groups, basically. Yeah, he's obviously been registered as not a threat, so... He's a, he's almost desexualized because he literally cannot have sex in the story. This is an instance where the text fully acknowledges that, yeah, if you're dead, you don't have working plumbing. Because a lot of these stories, and I get why, because you're trying to create a romantic fantasy, but they just kind of skip over that part. It's just like, dude, 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 yeah, just, just, they're having fun, yeah. How are they doing it? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. What? Yeah, just go and do it, do it yourself, you know. The thing is, well, he doesn't get it up. I mean, he's essentially impotent. Does he actually use the phrase impotent? Uh, well, I did look up something using Google Books, and it didn't. He did explicitly talk about his impotence and how the other men he'd been involved with uh, <laughs> were not so keen on his impotence. Which, I- in and of itself, is a fascinating thing to discuss yeah um but i i think he does sort of explicitly say that he is impotent or at least he is impotent and that he cannot do things but also he's just more polite he's well-mannered he listens to the women he just seems to come off as very able to be trusted he is benign yet still an incredibly powerful and alluring figure which is a fascinating balance to explore in and of itself. Like, they sort of, you know, ask, you know, oh, are you interested in, you know, a 19-year-old niece, etc.? And he's like, she's lovely, but no. Okay. Which just makes him even more alluring to all these women. It's like, yeah. Oh, you're because, not a jerk. Yeah, he's not a jerk, and he's not actively pursuing anyone, so he's got, you know, that mystery thing. Plus, he's so well-educated and polite. He dresses so amazingly. And he came out of nowhere. So of course all the women want that. So it's interesting that he has ended up being kind of recreated so often in the fiction that followed. I wonder how many people have actually read um, Hotel Transylvania and other works, or if the type of character he is just comes so naturally to the vampire figure in a certain context. Yeah, well, you know the, the joke about the Velvet Underground, which is nobody bought their... Only 10 people bought their album, but those 10 people made, you know, music that sold for millions, so everyone has heard them in that aspect. Mm. So I think everyone who's read Laurel K. Hamilton, and that's a lot of people, primarily women, over 20, 25 years, will be very familiar with that particular trope. I mean, you even see it in Twilight, and we know for a fact that the only kind of vampire fiction that Stephanie Meyer had really experienced was briefly Buffy and very briefly, I think, the first interview with Vampire. But it's it's so easy to kind of absorb that particular image and idea. 
Plus, you know, you've got this character who has, especially in um, Saint Germain's case, lived for so long, and you know he's had so much time to educate himself and learn things and see things, and that's why he's so badass and so talented, and why he can um, come up with the Greek style operator Garia because he's already done all that. And yet he's not bored. No, you know, which is so refreshing. <laughs> I know, it's like, stuff has happened to him in the past, but he's just having fun exploring something new, getting involved in alchemy, creating diamonds out of nothing. Well, not nothing, but he's creating perfect artificial diamonds and building assistance technology for people with disabilities, and he's got a lot of hobbies. Which is great, like, that's what you always want these characters to do instead of wallowing in self-pity. You actually want them to go out and live their goddamn lives. See, it is kind of refreshing to not have an angsty vampire. Oh, yeah. Even when it comes to the romance, he's not really angsting. You know, he's like, well, she's attractive, but too young. Oh, well, I'll still be nice to her. I'm not that jerk who's only around because he's interested in a woman romantically. He's not a vampire nice guy. What's really interesting about the relationship that Saint-Germain ends up exploring with the character of Madeline is she is, I wouldn't say it's insta-love, but she is so instantly accepting of him being a vampire and instantly accepting of the idea of becoming a vampire herself, even though she was raised by nuns. Those were some pretty down-low nuns. Well, she was already interested in vampires before she found out, remember? There's an early piece where they were having a a discussion and a debate on vampirism, and she sort of says something, I think, and he just sort of like goes, huh. She's like Catherine from Northanger Abbey, (laughs) except she gets her fantasy. She was already open and accepting to the idea of what a vampire could be and mean. So when she encounters a reality that is similar to her idea, it's not a big leap for her. And the moment she finds out it's Saint Germain, she's like, "Ah, oh, for this." That's basically it. If it was a different character who turned out to be a vampire, she probably would not be so keen. She's obviously seeing the good side that the good things that immortality has brought him. You know, the education and the the worldliness and that because that's the thing. She dreams of you know going places and seeing the world and being educated more. And vampirism would be an opportunity for her to do that. Because even yeah, by- and I know that there are books in the series that tell her story. Yeah, because even you do get to see more of her. And even by the end of the book, she is actively learning and growing. She's taking advantage of the opportunity she has been given. The last letter is said to be written in um, beginner's Arabic because she started learning that language. Although, judging by the actual letter, I'm thinking that's if that's supposed to be beginner's Arabic, she's really clever. So for her, we get the idea of the vampirism as an opportunity for freedom, a way to break out of the restrictions placed upon her by the period towards her gender. Which is really fascinating, because usually, well not usually, but certainly what is one of the more common and kind of popular versions of that story for the woman to become the vampire is it's to do solely out of dedication to that particular romance. I love this man so much, I want to be with him for eternity. And sure, you know, Saint Germain himself is part of the package, but it's also an opportunity provided. It's actually not that uncommon if you think about it, because look at um, Sarah Chagall, back from Towns to Vampire. Is she into Graphon Krolock, or is she just wants to get out of her father's house? I think that changes from... Production um, to production. Production yeah. to production, yeah. But the, the option is there, certainly. It's a change in station that allows access to whatever she wants. And obviously, as someone so liberal-minded as Saint-Germain, he obviously has no problem with an educated woman. Yeah, he seems into that. 
yeah, he, he, he likes a woman who speaks her mind and wants to improve and learn and grow because he spent all, of, all those years learning and growing himself. So it's interesting that that's the focus of the romance in the story and not, you know, the actual sort of development of the relationship because they've already skipped over sex. Although they do, <laughs> is it sex? What is it that they do? Because it's described like sex. Um, or it's described in the way that, like, the romance novels of that era described sex, when, which is very purple. Yeah, very purple, fade to black. Because for the first time he actually bites her, I was like, did, did they just have sex in, like, a church? Yeah, there's some really interesting descriptions in it. For all his impotency, he can still trigger a romance sex scene. He's that good a nice guy. <laughs> all the allure, none of the mess. <laughs> well, if you're bleeding everywhere. But we don't really get a description much of the blood. It's all described as being kind of a pretty civilized thing to do. Which is, hey, I'm hungry, so do you need to be fed? Yeah. Do you want me to do it? If you don't mind. Yeah, I mean... Because Madeline really... just is totally open to doing it. Yeah, Madeline's like, hey, so you want to... You wanna... Only if you're sure. He's really big on getting consent. Which is nice. Which is just nice in general. You know, wish more men in general would really be open to looking for an explicit yes. And also just in vampire fiction, because as we've talked so much before about the vampire as a metaphor for rape, in a book that is filled with it. Yes. The one guy who is big on the consent and, you know, wanting willing partners is the vampire. It's a real reversal of that traditional association. Which I think sort of leads us nicely into our Satanism talk. So this book has Satanists in it. Actual Satanists, not, you know, Sherlock Holmes surprise, they're not actually Satanists. Don't know I, I, we, we described it a little bit as being like Sherlock Holmes. So you know how in the first Sherlock Holmes story you have this build up and you think, hmm, what's going to, be, ha- what's going to happen here? Who's going to be the big baddie? And then it's like, oh, Mormons? <laughs> here, it's just like, oh, Satanists in... Louis XV viewer of France. Sure, why not? I, I don't know what I expected. And that, that seems to be a little bit of um, <laughs> a bit early for that, a few hundred years to be early for that. <laughs> but uh, it's very, uh, the way that Saint-Germain even kind of reacts to it. He's mad at them and he thinks that they're sort of an evil waste of time, but he's also just mildly irritated sometimes. Well, when you're that old and you've been through so much more, yeah. it's like, oh, you guys... I mean, I imagine he has seen, like, actual sacrifices and things like that, you know. I mean, if he lived for ancient Rome... He's seen gladiatorial combat, things like that. He's seen a few head chops. Probably done a few. And even then, he's like, some encounter with the Satanists of the previous generation. And he's like, ugh, these guys again. Because this Yeah, this is a guy who really wants to enjoy his immortality and not have to deal with this kind of shit constantly. I know... There's a few people who sort of like, huh, you look exactly like this guy from like 40 years ago. How old was this man? 42. And how old am I? Uh, 45. <laughs> so can't be me. But it's interesting because this is one of the ways that the book clearly positions him as a hero. Like full on capital H hero. Here comes the cavalry. You know, he's not like a, a Louis who's so tortured by his own pain and past that he can't actually be of any use. Nor is he like Lestat, who's having too much fun pissing everyone else off to get involved with fixing things for humans, who are the ones that are really going to suffer. He actually goes out and, you know, has to deal with it. He may be a little bit hesitant about it, but he still does it. 
his years and experience add to his badassery when it comes to rescuing and saving the day because he's got all this extra knowledge on how to do things. He's used to commanding people and he knows his Latin, I guess. He's just showing off all that knowledge. Basically, he's like, ugh, I've dealt with worse. I'm just going to beat the crap out of this guy now. So yes, we've got actual Satanists, not surprise Mormons or surprise Mark Strong, not actually is a Satanist. And they're very explicit about what they do. They literally refer to what they do as rape and that they need to defile and damage virgins before they kill them. Because Satanism, apparently. And yet the men in this series are already jerks with women. It's it's, it's the more extreme version of it. But yeah, the, the message is, is pretty consistent. Yeah, it's just them taking their love of their status and their love of power and the way they see themselves as superior over women to, well, an extreme extreme. Yeah, I mean, Yarbrough on her website, it is quoted as saying, you know, she filtered it through a feminist perspective that both the giving of sustenance and its taking were of equal erotic potency. Yeah. So it's interesting, the sustenance here is very much the biological level. It has nothing to do with eroticism, enough in terms of that kind of traditional sexual act. Sex seems like something to be avoided in any way, actually. Sex is violence. Sex is violence in this, which is very second wave. And this is 1978. That's the thing. Feminism is a changing, changing thing. And Just that, as well, because the second wave sucked. Hashtag not all second wavers. That's the thing about looking at um, these older vampire texts, especially ones that do explicitly talk about feminism, at least on the authorial intent side, because feminism changes, therefore the attitudes in the books do change as well. A modern feminist vampire book probably have more em- emphasis on intersectionality and things like that, whereas this is not. Exactly. It's all it's about. It's kind of the feminist and vampires 101. Or it would position itself as that, although we would obviously go back a little further. It's early days. It's like yeah, how. The training wheels are on. Yeah, it's not like Dracula's anything closely related to proto feminism being Mina can actually do some stuff. Uh, it'll be really interesting to read some of her later books then to see how that evolves, especially as the series jumps through time. The next book in the series takes place in Venice in the late 1400s. And then the book after that takes place in ancient Rome. And then it goes to China and then it goes to the Romanov era, Russia and so on. It just, it keeps going on in yeah. different eras. And the most recent book in the series is set in 1950s in Europe during the rise of communism. That's what I love about the idea of this series is the potential based on the time periods. You've got a standard character you can follow along in various points of his life throughout such a variety of time periods, which gives you a consistent middle ground for all your um, starting point for all your historical fiction needs. But also the way the character behaves and other characters behave and are impacted by the society around them. You know, the, the, the status of women in Hotel Transylvania is based on their position in their society versus what they would be like in ancient Rome versus China versus everything like that because feminism moves in different spaces and different times depending on the place it is in. Um, American feminism is different from British feminism, which is from um, Japanese feminism and things like that because of the different ways things intersect 
which is why you get places saying, yeah, Western feminists, don't try and come over and put your feminism on our feminism because we've got different shit to deal with. Hashtag white feminism. So there is certainly an interesting element to discuss there just with Yarrow's work alone and jumping through town and evolving in an offer and explicitly describing herself as putting a feminist slant on her work. And how does that change? And what decisions does she make for the women in those series? How much of it is about historical accuracy? And I put heavy air quotes around historical accuracy because of how that term has been twisted to mean... To be used as a defense mechanism by certain sexist offers and makers and so on. It's historically accurate. There are vampires or dragons or Well, I was, um, this is what happens every time we talk about rape in Game of Thrones. It's like, oh, but it's accurate to the era. And it's like, there's fucking dragons. I know. Or you see people complaining about the fact that there are like women in power or there are characters of color in Dragon Age. It's like, yeah, let me get out my board and pointer and discuss this with you. Yeah, complaining about how there's a, a trans male character in a, a mercenary group. You do know this mercenary group is led by an eight foot tall grey dude with horns, right? Consistency is not these people's strong point. But um, I- I'd be interested to read the rest of the series to see how Yarbrough handles the inherent whiteness of her hero. I mean, the series goes for, you know, to ancient Rome. One of the books is set in Egypt and the Ethiopian borderlands in 12-1300s. There's every revolution you can think of going on in these books. He goes to the Carpathian Mountains, he goes through communism. And hope he go to the Carpathians, because, I mean, what a waste. He's in India in the 1400s in one book as a white dude. It's in Latin America in the 1600s is one book. You know, there are things that you have to, to tackle. He's like here. the Doctor. This white guy just wandering through everywhere and everywhere. Well, let's hope her work is less Stephen Moffaty than that. <laughs> that's basically what it is. The privilege of the white man wandering yes. through all these times and places. Yeah, so we can't judge the series in that way because we haven't read it. There's 27 books in the series, guys. By the time we get through that... Is there another one? Things to do. They don't seem to have announced a new book. Mm. The last one was published in 2014. So maybe it's coming. She has published a crap ton. Oh, wait, no. Number 28, Orphans of Memory, Work in Progress, Working Title. Oh, okay. There you go, then. Well, she sort of gets out one or one every two years or maybe even a year. First five or six books, it was one a year. I mean, she is prolific. Well, she is 73, so I wouldn't. Um, blame her if she slowed down to you know once every three years <laughs> but okay so one a common thing we talk about in these podcasts is the especially as from our last episode in fright night there's the performance of masculinity and the attributes attached to various forms of masculinity now this period is all about fashion and powdering your hair and that was what masculinity was about you know being able to meet these standards as opposed to, I don't know, um, Magic Mike. <laughs> now that would be an interesting vampire story. I think that was part of True Blood. <laughs> you know, there's an entire essay to be written about True Blood and the masculinity of Alexander Skarsgård. I volunteer us to write it. <laughs> we'll have to do a lot of research. <laughs> research purposes. Well, actually, to just make a slight deviation, you know, the bit where he's actually getting his hair done and foiled. 
But he's also seen, he likes to suntan, he likes to wear very tight trousers. Like, there is a man who knows exactly how important a particular strain of masculinity and attractiveness is to his image. He doesn't wear a sock when doing nude scenes. Well, he's Swedish. He's a Skarsgård. They wouldn't let him. His dad would be really ashamed of him if he did. I know. His dad was like, well, now I've got to get naked for my next film. And that's Thor 2. Keep in mind, Alexander Skarsgård's next film is Tarzan. Yes. Which looks horrendously bad, but, you know, long we'll, we'll have to see that. Or, uh, accurately, we should call it Bufflap. <laughs> so... You know, white powdered wigs are the hugely essential this period of fashion, especially for men. Everything is about the fabric and the fit. It's extremely embellished in that way. It's a show of wealth. For women and men. There's a lot of silk. There's a lot of velvet. There's a lot of, you know, high-end neckwear. <laughs> Lots of hats. Lots of jewellery. all about status. But there's not really a lot of that colour in Saint-Germain's style. He's described as being a man who very much prefers black. Yeah, maybe a little bit of red or something. Or a dash of white. But it's black. It's really sassy. He is the vampire in black. He killed a Satanist in Paris just to watch him die. And because he was pissing them all. (laughs) He killed a bunch of Satanists in Paris. (laughs) Dun, 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 dun. But as history went on, and even, you know, just, you know, 10, 15 years later, once you get into the era of Louis XVI, and of course, this little thing called the French Revolution, that particular kind of fashion and what it symbolizes becomes a sign of decadence and corruption and vanity. And the very act of being somewhat effeminate as a man is a sign that you are corrupt beyond reason. So, you know, early on, you already have Saint-Germain kind of, you know, rejecting that. He still fits into society, you know. He's not going to be shunned. They, they like him too much for that. They're far too interested in him for that. But he's not kind of rubbing it in everyone's faces. He, he's almost showing off by not showing off. Yeah. You know, he's that guy with his own style, and that that's what makes him so cool. Yeah, he's the man bun of his day. <laughs> so a common sort of event in a lot of these... Um, horror novels or novels with horror or vampire elements is the use of um, sexual assault against women as a means of just showing how terrifying this situation is, the monstrousness of um, certain characters. And while this does take place in um, Hotel Transylvania, as we've discussed before, the Satanists are very um, overt about their intentions towards certain female characters. Like, they explicitly use the term rape. And it's interesting that they use that specific term. Like, there's no cloaking what they're doing. They're not even trying to push it as seduction or power or anything. It is yeah. just straight up rape. It's, we're li- we've tied you to the altar naked, and this is what we are going to do to you. The impending rape is part of the horror and torture. But while there is that um, sexual assault against women... We also see an instance of male-on-male sexual assault in the same sequence. In, well, in the latter sequence, because unfortunately there are, there's one rape, one definite rape victim that we see and then uh, an attempted rape and completed sexual assault later on in the book against women. 
honestly that this this left me conflicted and i understand you know this novel came almost 40 years before everything's receded and we've been having this discussion for a long time now particularly with things like game of thrones and outlander about the way that rape and sexual assault is used mostly against women but often against men too as a means to a further character development and plot and b to establish badness like, we've been seeing this in Game of Thrones. You know, how do we establish that Ramsay Bolton is the worst? Have him rape and mutilate everyone over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah, it's the, what's the worst thing we can do to a female character? Yes. Right. It's rare that we see the, what's the worst thing we can do to a male character rape trope. Yes. It's not a good thing on any case. And I'm yeah. not calling for equal opportunity or anything. That's ridiculous. That's not what this is about. It's yeah. just rare that we actually see the trauma rape inflicts on men yeah. in fiction or in real life in general. It's not something that gets reported or talked about. Mostly when rape is used as a weapon against a male character, it's inflicted by a female surrogate. You know, the worst thing that can happen to a man is that his wife or his daughter or his girlfriend gets raped and murdered. Yes. Whereas the woman, it's always the woman. The woman is the um, direct victim or she's the surrogate. The physical experience is the trauma for her. Having to watch a woman undergo that physical trauma is the trauma for a man. But in Hotel Transylvania, we actually see a male-on-male sexual assault. And which is something that we do that is not talked about enough. I mean, men's rights activists um, like to talk about the trauma of being falsely accused of rape when the statistics are that a man is more likely to be a victim of um, sexual assault than they are to be the victim of, of a rape accusation. But really, is this mentioned in real-life conversations or featured in fiction? Men are usually tortured. The torture is physical. There is not really a sexual element to it. Whereas, you know, women's torture is always sexualized. Yeah, she's always, or almost always, naked and there's a lot of lingering nipple shots. But yeah, like, I, I, I wear people that read vampire stories a lot and watch vampire movies and all of these things. We have expectations of things that are going to happen. And there is part of you that kind of sighs at the depressing inevitability of uh, this scene is going to be or, I, or at least suggest rapiness. The alpha male overpowering the weaker female. Yeah. Or the alpha male coming in to rescue the weaker female from another alpha male. But you never get used to it. No. Like you can get jaded, but you never get used to it. And there's part of you that gets really annoyed at the offer or the filmmaker or whatever for making you or forcing you to be in that position where you have to condemn or excuse or justify or whatever instead of asking why they didn't make a different choice when it's clear that there were a myriad of choices open to them. See, back to Game of Thrones. Or even something like Outlander, which does handle rape much better from what I've been told, but why is rape such a prevalent part of the story anyway? Why is rape realistic? Yes. Why is rape an inevitability of being a woman in any period of time? Even when, historically speaking, we know that wasn't the case. Like, the excuse that's used for Game of Thrones with stuff like the Dothraki era um, setting is, well, it's inspired by the Mongolians... And that was a very rapey culture. And it's like, no, women did get raped, but they still had a justice system in place. 
I know. It wasn't like women got raped and they were like, well, that's just it. It's just the time we live in. They did put in place, you know, legal precedents and punishment. Yeah. And you don't see that. I was reading one thing about um, executioners and the role of an executioner in a certain society. And they mentioned that decapitation was the standard punishment for rape. And if the victim was so inclined, she could be the one to do it. And I'm like, sweet, I'm putting that in a story. And then that's how you get the entire, you know, genre and history of rape revenge fantasies. Mm -hmm. This is something that's been in the news a lot recently because for film fans, Paul Verhoeven, who made Robocop and Starship Troopers and Showgirls, his newest film, Elle, is a subversion of the rape revenge fantasy. Okay, I was going to say, are they going to do another I Spit on Your Grave? Because they've already remade that. And apparently entirely missed a point of that film. So anyway, the thing is, we really do see um, or discuss male victims of sexual assault. Off the top of my head, I can you know only think of a handful in fiction as opposed to female victims of sexual assault and rape, just being too numerous to name. It's a rare thing, and I would love for one day for there to be like no sexual violence in anything I consume. But that's not. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have know. to stop consuming everything. I would have to just. Exactly. I would just have to read like picture books. Coloring in books, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There we go. That'll be my entirety of it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying you know get rid of discussions of rape or handlings of rape in fiction altogether. I think there is a very necessary need for those stories. We need space. to be handled properly. Uh, to give an example, uh, I don't know if you've read *The Just City* by Joe Walton. No. I have some issues with the way that the rape is handled in that story, but it's thematic. The entire, you know, one of the essential themes of that book is the god Apollo coming to the realization that the autonomy of humans, because it starts out that Daphne's just turned herself into a tree rather than be raped by him. He doesn't understand what this whole consent thing is. And the book is kind of him coming to the realization that actually, no, consent, it, it, it's a thing and it's a cool thing and it's a big deal and we should have more of it. I'm, I'm not doing it justice. The book is actually really wonderful. I you know, there, is, uh, there is a need for those stories. Exactly. And fiction does reflect our world as it is. And in many ways, the horrible depiction of rape reflects the horrible way that we deal with rape in our world. Yep. Or that's the excuse that you could use. I, I mean, back to look to the woman, you know, warning each other about which men to avoid in this book. It's a discussion that we have often in our lives these days. You know, who do you avoid at a party? Or So, you know, we would certainly welcome more of a discussion of it in even vampire fiction for us. The only other major example I can think of off the top of my head where the theme is explicitly discussing vampirism as a metaphor for rape is the George Romero film Martin, which you would be really interested in, by the way, if you haven't seen it. We will end up doing an episode on that at some point in the future because it's such an interesting dynamic to get into. Warning for if you haven't read it, there is it's not the most graphic sexual assault scene it or any of the sexual assaults or rape that I've ever actually read or seen on TV. But it's there. Yeah. So tread carefully if this is an issue for you. And we totally understand if it is. Yeah, I, I was definitely, once it got to a certain thing, got ready to back out and skip pages or whatever it was. Didn't actually reach that point for me. That's the thing. Well, with- as we mentioned, it's something that is it lingers. Yeah, that's the thing. Always kind of on the the lookout of it. You're always hyper aware that it's there. That's the thing. So much vampire fiction does have such issues with consent or scenes of sexual assault and rape and things like that. 
mostly against women, but also against men. Going back to last episode, the whole pool sequence in the Fright Night remake. The, um, what's the term in romance? Forced seduction? Usually forced seduction or just non-con, which is, like, more of a fanfiction thing. Yeah, non-con is the fanfiction term. Um, Forced seduction seems to be more the romance community term. I'm not actively involved in the romance community, so some of these terms are... I'm a little more active, but yeah, it's the one that you tend to see more so in the past. Like, this book kind of somewhat coincides with the rise of what we know as the traditional romance novel. You know, the flame and the flower, that kind of thing. And the big thing in that era in the 80s with people like Joanna Lindsay and Jude Devereaux was you could never be seen as having sexual desires. So you had to just sort of fight against it until you eventually gave in to them. Mm-hmm. because a man pushes you into it and that's how you get the forced seduction thing which I get why that's a kink for some women you know like you do you but it's you know it's it's tetchy territory I'm more familiar with the um, fan fiction side of terms you know seeing non-con and go nope yeah or dubcon is the other one which makes it sound like you're listening to Swedish house mafia we do try and talk about intersectional feminism on this podcast, but unfortunately a lot of the things that we discuss don't have many opportunities for intersectionality to take place. Um, a lot of the fiction has been quite white, and it's mostly been um, feminism along one axis. Occasionally we've had queer um, axes crossing over, talking about the lack of or the treatment of characters of colour, but um, disability has really, really popped up in the vampire works that we've consumed, both for this podcast and just in general. Often when you see disability, it's something in vampire fiction, it's something that is being cured by vampirism. You know, that woman is dying and or as eternal illness or something like that, she's like, yeah, tell me, come on. A terrible, terrible called The Raven, which what? is by the guy that wrote the Dante's Inferno Twilight. I was going to say, is this the Twilight fanfiction that comes so It's the original work of the, it's the spin-off of the Twilight fanfiction, but the Twilight fanfiction didn't have vampires in it, and this one does. Sylvain Reynard, one of the worst books you'll ever read. But the central sort of moment is the, the, the heroine, who's called Raven, Raven Wood, right? Let's just all lie in the dirt and die now. But she is not only overweight, but she has a limp. And she's generally described as being unattractive. And then she doesn't become a vampire, but she is fed the blood of a vampire and she becomes skinny and beautiful and can Walk. does not have a limp anymore. And obviously this is awful. Like This is just hugely problematic. It doesn't stick. It's only temporary in the book, but it's clear that the implication is by the end of this series, she will be beautiful and perfect and not in any way suffering from a physical disability because that goes against quote-unquote perfection. In Hotel Transylvania, there is a character named Hercule. He's a carriage driver, basically. And he was working for one of the douchebags, but was assaulted and um, basically left severely, severely injured. Um, There was damage to his legs, to his kneecaps, basically rendering him unable to walk. St. Germain finds him is a badass on a whole new level because he has some medical knowledge and knows how not to fuck up the legs work even worse while they wait for the doctor. The, the doctor actually says this, you know, it's only thanks to St. Germain's medical knowledge that he didn't, you know, destroy the legs any further. But even um, without extra damage caused by mishandling and terrible first aid, he is left unable to walk. They can bend, but he can't 
he can't lock his knees. Which, as you can imagine, in this period of time is, without anyone to support him, it would basically be a death sentence. And this terrifies poor Hercule, obviously. Because, well, he loved his job, and now he can't do anything. Enter Heroic Saint-Germain, who not only, you know, still employs, rescues him and still employs him, but he actually builds him braces that lock like his knees would, giving him an aid that helps him walk again. Most other vampire fiction would just say, here, eat some blood, you'll be good. But he doesn't do that in this book, It's which is very different. Yeah, it's an interesting contrast from what we are so depressingly used to, which is that disability is a problem that must be fixed. That these are people who are broken and need to be fixed, which is a horrific way to look at people. But there's none of that. There's not even a mention of... Hercule taking any sort of vampire blood. In part, this is probably because to take any amount of vampire blood is to turn. It's not like other fiction where you need to have a you know a decent amount or and die or you know it or takes place over a long process like in Dracula. It's one and done. Even assuming that uh, any amount of Saint Germain's blood would heal Hercule, it would also turn him, and he's not really into that. Having a disability or, you know, having or an injury is more about finding tools to enable you to do what you what you need to do, whether it's, you know, crutches or a wheelchair or a hearing aid. And that's what happens in this book. He is given tools to basically recover the, the abilities that have been damaged, a brace that locks at the knee. There's some detail given to it. He talks about um, how, you know, it bends only one way like the knee and then it locks and supports and that's how it works. And it's, you know, a very modern genius, you know, look at how awesome Saint Germain is. You know, like every other sequence <laughs> Saint Germain is in, <laughs> in this book. But for a vampire story, it is very different to see one that there isn't literally a magical cure. Once again, remarkably progressive, all things considered from what we could have possibly gotten. There's not too much to touch on, but I thought it was worth mentioning the entire Hercule sub-story. So, what is your final thoughts on this book? With the book, I, I, I respected it more than I liked it. It was interesting to see one of the, you know, the foundations of so many of the books and films that I've experienced. Not just doing this podcast, but in general. So there was enjoyment for me there, and I liked the subversions of certain elements. It didn't entirely go the way that I thought it would. I I found the general narrative itself very plodding. It's written in a way that I am not necessarily a fan of. It's a lot of descriptions of things in order to evoke an era. There's lots of descriptions of the clothes, of the buildings, of the food, that kind of thing. And I get for a lot of readers that would be an immersive quality. I found it really distracting. But your mileage will vary in that. I do suggest you give it a shot. If only to really see the kind of foundations of everything else that we've experienced in the genre. Yeah, it's a good book. It's somebody else's vampire book, though. Yes. Like, I will take Anne Rice over this, to be honest. Because Anne Rice is overwrought and ridiculous, but there's real passion and drive behind that. This felt more like a kind of a very successful experiment. But an experiment all the same. This period of France is not really my back. Which, for me, is part of the issue. I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. If you're into Outlander, you might be into this book. 
because I think it's doing kind of a similar thing. It's not a vampire book in this era. It's a historical drama that just happens to have vampires in it, in the same way that Outlander's a historical romantic drama that happens to have time travel in it. Yeah, I'll read other books, especially ones in time periods and places that I'm more interested and familiar with. Like Blood Games is first one in ancient Rome, so I'm definitely going to jump in and read that because I love ancient Rome and the ancient world. I think that's really the benefit, is there are so many books and they don't have to be read in order from what the author explains. And they cover such a wide breadth of history, you can really dip into wherever you want. There's going to be one period that you're going to like. So if anyone else has read these books, get in touch with us because we'd love to hear more. I guess it's a bit like reading some Terry Pratchett books, you know. Everyone has their own order to them, depending on what you like. So yeah, it's very much a case of if you like other elements in this book, if you like certain time periods, then you'll probably enjoy it more. By the time I got to the end of it and I was more used to the setting and everything, I was enjoying it more. I mean, I still wish it a slightly better plot than um, Satanists, but I'm sure there's a lot of things a badass vampire can get up to in other time periods. And I do wonder if, you know, later books do have heavier emphasis on the vampirism aspect. The vampire thing is really minor. I was expecting, you know, the wacky adventures of a vampire in various time periods, not historical novels. It's a bare-bones vampire. It's very much, you know, not driven by mythos or the tropes. You know, he's not like, you have to do this, you have to be in at this time, you have to drink from this and this and this. It's really the basics, I think, in a way, not to distract from the historical elements of the story. So if that sounds like your bag, if you want a little more history in your vampire rather than the other way around, this would probably be the book for you. If you like your vampires free of self-pitying whining, this book is for you. Yeah, he, he there are mentions of mythology and everything. Like he mentions he has to have some of his native earth in his shoes. So he's like, I think he got like some specially designed compartments in his shoes, which allow him to, you know, walk around with no problems. So daylight, no. That's his solution. This is a vampire who's lived long enough that he gives no fucks to a lot of the problems that vampires have. He's got over his shit. Yes. There may be whining in other books that are set earlier. We don't know, like we said. But as it stands, if you want to give this a shot, you could do worse. Which sounds like such a slam. I don't mean it to. It's very much a certain person's vampire novel. If you're not into historical fiction, with the emphasis on the historical, there are other books that you should probably read. But if you do like your historical fiction, and you like vampires, this is two great tastes that probably will go really great together for you. I mean, I like the character and I like the writing style. I think the time period itself just really bummed me out. There will be other time periods where there's so many ancient Rome ones. So that's that for this episode of The Bloodsucking Feminists. False yet true advertising, I suppose. Next month, that is the June episode, we will be doing The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova, which ties in quite nicely as it is the one-year anniversary of our Dracula episode. This is the one-year anniversary of our Camilla episode, but much less lesbians, I suppose. We can't do lesbians all the time. I mean, we could. If you want to join us on the Historian episode, start reading now. The Historian is 700 pages long. If you have any questions, comments, anything in particular you'd like to say, please no hate mail. You can contact us via our website, bloodsuckingfeminist.com. 
via email, fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. That is fangmail with a G because we are terrible and love our puns. We're on Twitter at bloodsuckingfem. We're also around on Facebook and a few other places. Remember, you can download this on iTunes, share it with your friends, and we will be seeing you next month, having lugged around a gigantic book. See you then. Don't let the vampires bite.